Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet em, greet em, treat em, and street em. Today's date is October 24th, 2022, and I am your skeptical host, Dennis Wren. The title of today's podcast is Making Research Better, Faster, Stronger, and this is an SGMPEDS Extra. Today, I am excited to be joined by Dr. Damian Rowland, who is a consultant at the University of Leicester, NHS Trust, and honorary professor for the University of Leicester's Sapphire Group. He specializes in pediatric emergency medicine and is a passionate believer and advocate of FOMED. Damien is also part of the Don't Forget the Bubbles team. Damien, welcome to SGMPEDS and thanks for joining us. Uh, it's fantastic to be invited and you get huge brownie points because you've pronounced Lester correctly. So well done. Good work. You know, I actually had to Google that to make sure I didn't make a fool of myself, but I'm glad I got it right. Yeah, that's a fantastic start. So we first met virtually uh, when you gave a presentation at our division's Grand Rounds, and I sent you a message on Twitter after you posted about your preprint paper about infection of COVID-19 and serious bacterial infections in infants less than 90 days old during the Omicron surge. Yeah, so this was a a really interesting piece of work, and and I what I really enjoyed about it was that we managed to produce something that was useful to the wider pediatric emergency medicine, I suppose, clinician groups within the UK quite quickly. But the fact that I wasn't able to publish it in a traditional journal, I think, raised some questions which we're going to pick up during this discussion. Yeah, absolutely. And you, and you know, I do love talking about febrile infants, but because of that snafu, we started a separate conversation. So can you tell us, you know, how were you able to conduct that particular study and what was the issue getting it published? Ultimately, what, what we were trying to do is look at outcomes for, for children who are less than 90 days presenting to emergency departments within the UK who had a fever or had had a reported fever. And what we were worried about is these children who were known to be COVID positive because they'd already had a a test or that their family were positive might not get treated in the same way because people go, oh, they've got um, they've got COVID. So we don't need to worry about other infections. And we weren't sure what the impact of that was. But the problem is, is if you want to do research of good quality. So you want to prepare something that has a protocol, that has ethical approval, that has research governance. You need to go through a process. And we just simply didn't have time to do that because the Omicron surge was amongst us already. And we wanted to disseminate learning as quickly as possible. So under the public health disease control regulations we have in the UK, there's something called rapid evaluation. And that doesn't require formal ethical review. And so we we were essentially doing a, a service evaluation at speed across a number of hospitals. But, and this is where we've run into difficulty, is that journals don't often accept the fact that papers haven't had ethical review. And so that they've been not willing to publish this piece of work. This particular paper bypassed review by the Research Ethics Committee, or I guess in the United States, we might call it the Institutional Review Board, because you were trying to get this information out fast and in a timely fashion. Is that correct? Yeah, that's entirely right. Um, And 
to be honest, I, I'm not saying that we should be ignoring uh, ethics or governance, but I think there is a time and a place for quality control. And the big issue here is that as an advocate for knowledge translation, it's a little disappointing that I have this piece of work that stands as a preprint isn't probably formally going to go for peer review because whenever I approach a journal, they go, uh, well, where is the record? And especially in America, I, this would never go in an American journal because they all want IRB or IRB clearance. And I've not been able to do that. Yeah, that definitely sounds like a frustrating circumstance to be in. And although uh, I am a little bit disappointed we aren't talking about febrile infants today, I do think that because of this discussion, we were able to strike up a conversation about just research ethics in general. And before we jump too far into our show, I do think it's important to acknowledge that historically, the medical community has not always conducted research ethically. We took advantage of vulnerable and minority populations, as evidenced by the Nazi medical experimentation and concentration camps, the Tuskegee syphilis study, or the HeLa cells of Henrietta Lacks, just to name a few examples. And as you mentioned before, we both recognize the importance of research oversight and ethical research, but our world is definitely changing. And in the setting of emerging pandemics and technology and social media, how have those things impacted the way that we conduct and disseminate research? So let's start off by talking about our first point. How do we conduct research ethically during pandemics? Well, I think everyone who worked in healthcare saw that systems that governed not just research, but everything were scaled back to enable rapid change. So in research, uh, there were lots of things that were done to enable the, the research to get to the bedside as quickly as possible. So think some of the large studies that we had in the UK um, that were looking at steroids, for example, um, in COVID. That, that, that happened because we were able to go, look, this is an important piece of research. We just need to move through ethical review as quickly as possible. And if you think about vaccines, it was absolutely vital that the vaccines process had were as well governed. I'm not saying, again, we don't have well governed research, but it was as quick and as less bureaucratic as possible because we, we wanted to get that research done and the results out there. But there were also some detrimental consequences. I think we can all name a preprint that got media attention that was a, a piece of research which perhaps had ethical approval, but was just poor quality. The media pick up on it and we get things like ivermectin just spread as quickly as possible for, for no clear reason. So in the UK, we had some advantages because it was easier to get access to national data sets and this enabled some real-time research to take place. But I think when we think about pandemic research, we have to be fleet of foot and nimble, but in a governed way. And I think the best example of that is PIMS TS, or in America, I think it was uh, MIS hyphen C, uh, MISC C, that we had this new, Z new disease process, which we had to understand as quickly as possible. And we can't do that if you apply stringent ethical governance processes along the way. Um, and so I think it's really important that moving forward for our next pandemic, and there will be one, that we have these systems in place. And I think this is where the UK were a bit ahead of the game, is that there were a number of studies 
that had already got ethical approval and had the governance in place and were ready to go as soon as the pandemic hit. And that's kind of the future of research that I'm looking for. That sounds optimal, right? We're trying to make sure that we balance the governance of research and getting that knowledge translation piece and and getting a good product that might even change the course of a pandemic, like you mentioned, the vaccines out there to the public in an ethical and safe manner. I mean, it's it's critical. And I think we're going to stray into that. The, there's two probably different debates here. There's the the, the, the ethics of the research governance and when do you need to go to ethical committees? How do you get through research protocols and uh, the bureaucracy that goes with that as quickly as possible to do the research? And then there's a whole other question of actually how is that research legitimately disseminated? Because there was panic during the, the pandemic journalists and the public were looking for anything new. So if you produced anything that had a researcher's name against it, it just exploded, regardless of the quality of the research. And it's really, that's a real challenge. We've not completely got that mechanism right yet. And we still see even today, and social media is the blessing and the curse with this, is that really good research gets disseminated quickly on Twitter, but so does really bad research. And how can we keep those two competing conundrums at bay? How do we promote good research, but not promote bad research? Yeah, so that's actually a perfect segue for the second thing we're going to talk about, which is maintaining that research quality. And so while I hear your reasoning for wanting access to that data that can help us take care of patients during an emerging disease in a timely fashion, the publication quality is difficult, right? Because at some point, I'm pretty sure there were over 100 articles being published per day about COVID-19. And just like you mentioned, I don't think all of them were that useful or high quality. So I share Ken's appreciation for Professor Altman's writing that we need less research, better research, and research done for the right reason. So how do we find that balance? From my point of view, it's possible to have extremely well-governed research, which is actually really poor quality, but it finds itself through poor review disseminated widely, sometimes in really high-quality journals. And then you can get the, the flip side. You can have really well-governed research, which is really high-quality but journals disagree on that quality and that research has less impact because it's not perceived by journals to be good. And actually thinking about it, then there's this third arm where you get actually the either kind of poor quality research picked up by a journal which you wouldn't expect to and then that spreads quickly uh, and, and has the wrong interpretation. So well, what can we do about that, I suppose, is, is the key thing. And the problem that I particularly had was this interpretation of, of what is good ethical review. And I think there is a difference of opinion between is ethical review about the standard or quality of research or is it simply about the mechanistics of making sure that that research is ethical to perform? And so, for example, uh, a randomized control trial is always going to have ethical review because the public need to be assured that they aren't being subject to something that they shouldn't be. But if we have an observational study, that doesn't necessarily need ethical review. But an observational study might produce some findings 
which may be misinterpreted. So it still must have research governance. And I think some people read ethical review as the same as research governance. And I think that's what I'm pushing back at, against is I had a, a study which had, I think, was was well designed and robust, but hadn't been through a formal ethics committee. And because it's not been through a formal ethics committee, some journal editors decide that that's probably doesn't meet the quality, uh, doesn't meet the standard for high quality research. And, and that's a situation that I, I feel a bit frustrated about. Gotcha. So I, I appreciate you kind of separating out for us the governance of conducting research, the process of research itself, and then the publication of research. But if I can add a fourth part of this, which is the application of those research findings, right, when they finally reach the consumer, there are so many factors that come into play when we're trying to make these clinical decisions and facing the pressures of a novel pandemic. And the SGEM actually had Dr. Simon Carley on another SGEM Extra episode titled EBM and the Changing Man. And I think it's worthwhile to reinforce his concluding thoughts from the paper they discussed. And he writes, the principles of EBM are more important now than at any other time in our careers. And we must collectively do all that we can to ensure that our response to the pandemic is based on the science and not on the emotional, political, or economic issues that challenge it. And we echo the call for others for critical reasoning critical appraisal, and critical thinking during these challenging times. And so for our next talking point, I wanted to cover the topic of deferred consent. Yeah, so I think this is a, this is, this point comes up because as I've previously stated, I, I'm a bit worried that I think people misinterpret the role of the ethics committee but also, I think ethics committees themselves have changed over time. And deferred consent, especially in pediatric emergency care, is a really good example of this. So if you had gone back a decade or so ago, if you had suggested a trial that had, was a randomized control trial that needed to have a patient who was critically unwell and was managed on one of the two arms without consent of the parents, at the time that the randomization was done, and, and you did that without doing consent, people would laugh. You'd never get through a, an ethics committee at that time. But there has been enough research now working with parents and carers who don't want to make these difficult decisions. So if you have your, your son or daughter is in status and they need the best available treatment, you do not want to be asked about someone about which arm of a study that they should be in. Um, and the example I'm using is from the Eclipse and Concept study, uh, concept studies, looking at Levisoterosam versus Phenytoin for, for status. The parents in these groups didn't want that burden. And so what we agreed with the ethical committees was, is that we would just randomize these patients. And then when the dust had settled uh, and the child was on the wards, we would then approach the families and say, this has happened. Can we can get your consent for using this data? And I think the people who had the most problem with, with that weren't the parents or carers. It, were the, it was the clinicians themselves. I mean, incredibly, there was this 
pushback. Oh, we, we can't do this without consent. The, the ethics committees will, will never agree. And slowly but surely they have. And now I think deferred consent has become a legitimate in almost, I think, in five or 10 years time, it will become the standard practice. Parents are quite clear they don't want this additional burden at a time that's stressed. And so we need to think about a new way of doing things. And I think it's great to see ethics committees moving forward with that. Yeah, I totally agree. I'm trying to take the viewpoint here as as a parent, and I would for sure have other things on my mind if my child were in status epilepticus and would probably prefer not to be asked by research personnel whether or not I would want my child randomized to one arm or the other. But the other part of me, you know, as the, you can call me old fashioned, but I still, there's part of me that thinks that consent should be obtained prior, if at all possible, because you know, out of respect for patient autonomy and the principle of respect for persons. And maybe there are those exceptional circumstances when deferred consent is appropriate, such as in situations where there's actually some clinical equipoise or the patient is in critical condition or unable to provide consent. But I don't know, I'm still a little bit hesitant to see deferred consent being a standard given the history of our medical research when we're conducting research on pediatric patients, we're often trying to obtain consent from those legal guardians and assent from the child if, if possible. So we're kind of relying on a proxy consent, which in and of itself may or may not align with the preferences of the patient, right? Are there any special considerations you think when it comes to deferred consent for the pediatric population? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, it's a really legitimate and important challenge. I would say, though, having worked with, and I give a shout out to Kerry Wolfall, who has done amazing amounts of research, working with parents and carers about their views on consent and working in research. And it's amazing what children themselves will tell you about what they want to happen during a research study. And what they want to do is feel that they are part of a process where children are being given advantages in the future. And if it's difficult to do research and if consent's a barrier, they don't want those barriers to be there. They want this research to be undertaken. Now, they want to be informed about it. They want to know that their peers think it's relevant. So I think that's why this the importance of having, in the UK, we call it PPI or, or patient and public involvement, making sure that research just isn't led solely by clinicians anymore. Research becomes a collaboration between researchers, but also with the public and patients, and importantly in pediatrics, with children and young people. Let's involve them from the outset. And I think what we'll find then, if they're embedded into research to begin with, these questions of consent don't become important anymore because we're doing everything around the child and young person. And to really hit home my point, it seems to me ridiculous that we're we're doing research where we think it's important to get consent, but at no other point of that research cycle have we involved children and young people at all. I think that's so important and so poignant of a point that you made that we should be partnering with our community and our patients at the get-go when we start research studies to get their opinion, right? Because at the end of the day, if we're practicing evidence-based medicine, one of those pillars is the values of the patient and the family. So I, I really, really like that point that you made. The fourth point we're talking about today is big data. And did you want to talk about the episode study? There are loads of big 
data studies out there. I, I'm using episodes because it's the one that I've been most recently involved in, which has been published to its conclusion. Uh, and this was a study led by Rud Nijman, who's a, a pediatric emergency medicine and infectious disease uh, specialist in London. And we brought together a number of uh, European hospitals. So all the way for, from the UK on the left-hand side of Europe, going in to some of the Eastern European states. And what we were able to do is look at children's attendances to emergency departments pre, during and post COVID. And what was really great about this research is that we were able to start standardizing the way that hospitals were reporting back on their data. And it's raised some really interesting questions. So, I, I mean, I think there's some findings from the study itself that show that the children's emergency department attendances dropped uh, quite significantly. I think everyone knows that. But what was really interesting is the way that those attendances dropped and some of those conditions that dropped in between hospitals, even within the same country or between countries. And that really asks the question, are we all doing things in the same way? And this, to me, is where big data is really going to be useful. Because I don't know, Dennis, um, do we practice pediatrics in the same way? From our conversations on social media, I'm pretty sure we do. But I don't know that because I've not seen you practice and you've not seen me practice. And so while we talk about some common things, what I don't know is the outcomes from my emergency department. Are they the same from your emergency department? And are there different patient mixes or patient groups? And I think when we get a handle on being able to extract large amounts of big data from individual hospitals and find ways of comparing them in reliable and objective ways, we'll really start to understand the way that children's emergency care operates on a global scale. For example, I'm absolutely fascinated in the use of steroids in wheezes and asthmatics. I'm, I mean, amazingly, the use of intravenous magnesium, some of the work that I've done with Susan Shu um, in Canada has revealed massive differences in the way that these medications are deployed. And I think big data is going to enable us to look at scale at, at practice and be able to dig down onto the question, why are we doing this? What Have we got the evidence base right? Is what we're doing in the UK fit for purpose in the USA and vice versa? Um, and there's so much stuff to unpick from that. There's a lot of global pediatric emergency medicine research networks now that are trying to gather a bunch of data and answer some of these questions. And I think these are great collaborations. And I think overall, the results that they generate might be more generalizable in comparison to maybe a single center study. But do you think that, you know, there there are probably some variations in the prevalence of certain diseases or the phenotypes of certain diseases, depending on where you are geographically. So I do think that we need to still continue to apply a skeptical and critical lens to any of these big multi-centered studies and to see whether or not we can truly translate these findings into the care of our patients locally. Do you think that's fair? Uh, I mean, th that's a brilliant point. And I suppose that's where I'm trying to get to is, is there truly variation? And that's the question that I, I, I'm really interested to answer. 
are the group of febrile infants who present to your emergency department the same as mine? Because if they're not, actually, the application of some of these important algorithms is not going to be the same. But yet we publish research and we discuss research and we try and disseminate research as if it is. But we don't know that. And, and I'm interested also, let's just take the wheezy infant. Is, is the three-year-old who presents to, with wheeze to my department the same phenotype as the patient who presents to yours? Because it makes that would make a difference in the evidence I use for that patient. So you, you are spot on. And but I personally think the way that we can start asking those questions about differences is by an, analyzing data at scale. Fair enough. And, and I will give you a wink and a nod here for bringing it back to the febrile infant. I do, I do appreciate that. I don't know if you did that for me or not. <laughs> so, so our last point, and I think this is a huge, huge topic in and of itself, but the ethics of sharing research findings via social media. Boy, was this a just chaotic situation, especially during COVID. Oh, oh, definitely. And actually, this is one of the few occasions where, so I've, I've had, I've been on Twitter and other social media sites for, for quite a long time, I, I suspect a, a decade or so. And my observation, especially around pediatric emergency care, is that we are a very objective group of clinicians who enjoy a, a bit of debate, we enjoy research review, but I've never had a situation where I've really been surprised by the interpretation of colleagues of the same evidence that was presented. But COVID was the first time that, that I saw this happening. And it, it was in, in particular relation to the United States interpretation of what was having happening with COVID rates in children compared to the UK's. Um, and I watched a number of, of colleagues um, in the US say and do things which I was really surprised about because my reading of the evidence was quite different. Things about what we did with schools, why were ICUs filling up, etc, etc. So it, it really made me think about my own use of, of social media. And one of the things that I find is that I don't think I'm a particularly controversial clinician. And I certainly think with every tweet I do, well, how is someone going to interpret this and how are they going to push back on it? And so perhaps my some of the things that I say are a little mundane or they're, they're, they're quite objective. They don't lead to a lot of speculation, but that doesn't get shared as much. And I know that. And you watch what some other people do with hitting the panic button or just quoting one line from the results and cherry picking stuff. And I think there are some real dangers that, that COVID brought home to me about the way that especially researchers use social media to make sure that they're setting the right professional tone, that they're sharing the right information, and they're doing so with objectivity. And I think it's really hard sometimes because if you get focused and you forget the lens with which you're sharing information and you forget the, the how you share information may be interpreted differently by the public or those without a strong pediatric background we have responsibilities to make sure that that information is as quality as controlled as possible absolutely 
And as Uncle Ben once said, with great power comes great responsibility. And I think that scientists are realizing that social media is such a great mechanism for knowledge dissemination and knowledge translation. And that's what we're doing now with the SGEM. But, you know, it reminds me of the quote from Sir Mark Walpert that says, science is not finished until it is communicated. So we're using social media to communicate, but it does kind of suffer from a lack of quality control over what is communicated. Oh, yeah. But, and then on the flip side, you could say that there's amazing quality control because people plow in almost immediately if you post something wrong. It's just that the onlookers to those debates aren't sure who has the truth. And I think that's the problem, that the truth is a subjective uh, paradigm, unfortunately, on social media. Yeah, and we're essentially seeing people crowdsource what is truth or fact because i mean let's face it we like being around like-minded people so it's easy to create communities on social media that end up being echo chambers and confronting a perspective different than our own is uncomfortable but i do think that we all need to do a better job at being open to them and it's okay to disagree but not be disagreeable and it's okay to change our minds right because I remember people being so critical that health organizations worldwide were changing recommendations as the pandemic went on, but that's science. So what tips do you have for us? I I think that the important point you made there was this being open to changing your mind. And I think it was really difficult for the, the public to understand sometimes that People took or organizations took one viewpoint based on the evidence and then that evidence changed. So they changed their viewpoint. And I think it took a bit of work, I think, for some high profile individuals to realize that they had a responsibility to ensure that the wider public understood that and that an about turn isn't always a bad thing. Having said that, One of the problems is the difficulty with hesitancy now. And I'll give you a really good example of this. So America went in relatively early, I think, compared to other countries with vaccinations for for the youngest children for COVID. And the UK was or took a different approach, should I say. And we have a committee that, that looks at vaccinations. And one of the problems was is that they were analysing the data in real time, formed some different conclusions and were, were more delayed, should I say, with introducing some of the vaccinations. And I think that delay caused angst for the public because they thought that delay was uncertainty and that there was something wrong. And I think it was just that people wanted to make sure that all the weights and measures were in place. And I think we have a responsibility as clinicians, uh, as scientists, to highlight to the public and be brave ourselves. I try to acknowledge when I've got things wrong on Twitter. Actually, this was a bad call. I read the evidence in this way, but I was wrong about it. This is what we need to do in the future. There are some high profile people on Twitter who are unwilling to accept that they may have made a bad call recently. And and we need to be better at doing that as scientists. Um, And as you say, it's important that we're professional. It's important we're civil, but it's also really important that we're honest. The public really appreciate that. Right. And I do want to add that part of that honesty is not just owning up to any mistakes or instances when we misspeak, but also I think acknowledging that 
there is uncertainty and limitations to what we know, right? And I think, you know, we're we're not we're experts in certain ways, but we don't know everything. And I think you and I both know that the more you know, the more you realize how much you don't know. And that's okay. <laughs> that is definitely okay. Well, Damien, I think this has been a fantastic discussion. There's so much food for thought. And thank you for joining us on SGMPEDS. I hope we left our listeners with something to think about. Do you have any last thoughts that you want to share? I'd just like to say thank you so much for, for having me. This has been a really enjoyable discussion. And, I, and I'd, I'd love people to have a listen to this podcast and then kind of get back and, and challenge us. Please challenge me. That's what uh, social media is all about. And as we've just said, if we do it in a constructive, critical and honest way, that can only result in better patient care in the future. Well, I'm also looking forward to that discussion as well. And we'll be posting this on the SGM blog and Twitter. So the SGM will be back next episode doing a structured critical appraisal of a recent publication, trying to cut that knowledge translation window down from over 10 years to less than one year using the power of social media so that patients get the best care based on the best evidence. And before we sign off, Damien, do you mind giving us the SGM tagline? So... Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to everyone next time.